I really started to realize that this is what is healing for me. This is my language. This is how I communicate my experiences with the world. Hi, thank you for joining me. I'm Hecate, and this is Finding Okay, a healing podcast for survivors of sexual assault and abuse. I'm here today with Bailey Noella, who is the author of the new poetry book, Bathtub in Flames, and who also created the streetwear brand called Sino Apparel, which brings awareness to mental health disorders. I'm very happy to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Trigger and content warnings for this episode include the following. Trauma, abuse, childhood sexual assault, OCD, PTSD, the pandemic, racism and sexism in medicine, and spirituality. Please check in with yourself and make sure you're all right to continue. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm definitely hanging in there. You know, my version of okay has um, certainly changed since COVID has started. (laughs) Um, so just checking in with myself every morning right now I'm kind of just hanging in there it's one of those days but uh has been worse so yeah I definitely feel you yeah (laughs) yeah I uh I have the same thing and you know like the the same way oh checking in with myself every morning I almost feel like it's uh I there's some days that I'm just checking in with myself like every hour where oh, it's yeah. just continuously like one step at a time just Absolutely. to get through it. Yeah. yeah. Every couple of hours, you just got to make sure <laughs> you're going through it okay. Yeah. What am I feeling? Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I would love to hear a compliment that you've received and that you've never forgotten. In high school, there was a girl who I never spoke to really. Um, who came up to me and told me that I inspired her to dress however she wanted. (laughs) And that was very, very sweet. That stuck with me. I love fashion. So um, having someone go out of their way to let me know that they noticed that and it was inspiring to them was super sweet. I never forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that gave me all the feels. (laughs) (laughs) Especially because I I remember who those people were for me Mm. in high school and they in some ways, like it wasn't just about fashion. It was also just um, about being an individual, like being your own person. And like, I I remember who those people were and they kind of saved my life just by existing. Yeah, no, high school was already so hard. So really any compliment um, for me was (laughs) like, okay, thanks for changing my day. That was really helpful, especially from like other kids that I never spoke to. It just meant a lot that they wanted to go out of their way and help me have a better day. So I definitely, I think about that all the time. Like it just now, it's kind of funny. Oh, well, I'm glad I asked. Yeah. so awesome. (laughs) So what is your favorite color or color combination and what do you associate with it? A lot of people get kind of um, annoyed with me when I say this, but I love gray. (laughs) I always get people telling me like, oh, that's not a color or... Um, that it's depressing, but as someone who loves winter, um, I find it very calming. I definitely mm. think of, you know, the monochromatics of the season. It's so peaceful and it's all, you know, a couple different shades. So I love gray. I love blue. I can never decide. I'm kind of <laughs> up in the air about it all the time, but yeah, I like gray a lot. 
That's beautiful. It kind of makes me think of like birch trees and snow. Mm, exactly. Yeah. It's always something supernatural and calming, not too in your face. So yeah, I absolutely love it. Nice. I've never heard that answer before. That's I know. <laughs> People are that's always great. like, that's so depressing. And I'm like, no, I promise. Like it's, it's such a calming color, but you just don't think about it. You know, if there's a gray wall or something, you mm-hmm. know, that's, that's a lot easier to take in than something more depressing. So... If I were to summon you in a ritual, what five things would I need to place as offerings at each point of the pentacle on the floor? Definitely a Charles Bukowski book. Mm. (laughs) Any of them, just put one down. I'd say a beret. Like I said, I'm super into fashion. And for me, that's kind of the tying point together. So if it's like a beret and a color I don't have or something, (laughs) Mm. maybe if you could bottle up snow or something, love winter. So that's a good one for me. Um, a good pen. <laughs> I'm definitely obsessed with good pens. Like if I'm at a restaurant and I have to sign my name with something on the receipt, I get so excited if it's a good pen. It's weird. What's um, your favorite kind of pen? You know, I don't even know. Like <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. have a brand that I reach for or anything. Um, it's always just the most random ones, like from a college or, you know, a desk job or something just really nice pens or calligraphy pens of any kind um yeah I love that stuff yeah and then just like a tattoo gift card or something I don't know if that's a thing but (laughs) yeah it is uh it depends on the shop if you if you ever come across a parlor that uh, or a studio that does work that you love then Mm -hmm. um sometimes they they offer gift cards so that's that's a worthwhile question to be asking and certainly a way that you can support tattoo studios during covid is to buy gift cards for later because even if they're not working right now chances are they rely on that income that they're not receiving as much of right now because of covid yeah i didn't even think about that but that's fantastic i've got so many ideas for tattoos that i want Mm. Um, but obviously right now it's not a great time to get them. So I didn't even think about that. That's fabulous. I'm a tattoo artist. I've been, uh, (laughs) having a lot of conversations (laughs) with other artists and it's a weird time. It is. Yeah. I imagine I felt so Mm -hmm. bad uh, for them, especially piercers as well. You know, you've got people wanting nose piercings right now and it's like, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah, no. So, so I definitely feel what are three essentials to your self care? Definitely skincare I really can't start my morning or in my day without it it's such a nice refresher it wakes you up in the morning it kind of lets you know it's time to start going to bed and yeah just taking care of my health in that way um books definitely you know kind of having that story to calm down or explore other places is really important for me and I love making vision boards that's definitely a big thing for me Mm. um Anything that kind of helps me get closer to the path that I want to be on, um, whether that's meditation or, like I said, vision boards, those are big, big things for me. When do you make time to read? What's that look like for you? Well, I'm reading all the time for my job. I do editing, Um, but I don't really, I don't fully count that just because it is typically rough drafts of books. And I can tell you (laughs) that's not the same as just sitting down and reading a uh, finished product. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And you've got a different part of your brain switched on. Yeah. 100%. I'm not able to just take in the character development and everything. I'm, I'm not really fully into that the first round, but during the afternoon or just before bed, I like to read 
Or if I'm trying to write, I find myself reading before I have a writing session a lot just to get inspired or maybe have it conjure up some memories for me that I might want to write about. So really anytime I can get in the afternoon is usually when I'll be reading. So I read your book, Mm -hmm. Bathtub in Flames, and I completely adore it. It's so beautiful. And I'm so glad that you reached out and that I've, you know, found out about it and got a chance to read it. So I completely adored it. And it is pretty exquisite and very moving. And it's very beautiful and very, very raw and human. It's very deeply human. So I definitely suggest it to to any of my listeners. When did you start writing? Um, It's hard to put an exact age on it because I think as soon as I knew that that was a thing... (laughs) I was writing um, as soon as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, I still find stories on like old desktops um, that I wrote, you know, about having like a pet monkey or <laughs> <laughs> the most random things. But uh, I think I started taking it more seriously when I was a teenager. I really started to realize that this is what is healing for me. This is my language. This is how I communicate my experiences with the world. Um, I've always been an artist. I loved drawing. I loved painting, all of those good things. But writing, yeah, as soon as I was a teenager, I started really sitting down and thinking about um, how much it means to me and taking it more seriously, for sure. Did you keep a poetry notebook or journals? I keep poetry, like slips of paper just everywhere. (laughs) Um, I'm very much one of those people who I'll just write something down on a napkin or whatever I do have um, journals, but I can tell you right now, I have not been good about coming back to those and using just those. Um, if you look at my notes in my phone, there's just a ton of lines of poetry that just come to me throughout the day that I want to work on more. Um, Mm. so it's really more all over the place. I have poetry, post-it notes, poetry, all, all of those different things. Thank you for sharing that because I think it's it's really important to hear about everybody's process and the yeah. variety and because that just adds some some validation to the way that other people do it as well. Because yeah. I think we're we're often sold versions of like this is the way you have to do it for right. it to be real or I don't know. Yeah. It's not always pretty. It's not always <laughs> it's not for me at least. So Yeah, definitely. So when did you decide to put it together into a book and like, tell me about the book and how it kind of came into being. Um, yeah, I would say probably about a year and a half ago is kind of when I got more serious and realized that this was a possibility for me to put all of these things into a book. I work with a publisher actually. And so through them, I was able to figure out the process, um, get the behind the scenes of it. And, so that op- like that opened a ton of doors for me. I'm very grateful mm. for that. Um, but yeah, uh, I would say when I was 18 is when I first started coming forward about my um, abuse. And after I did a couple of years of healing with that and some really deep inner work, I came to the conclusion that sharing that story was going to be a major part of that process for me. I found it very important and and like just integral to healing from that. So probably about a year and a half ago, I, you know, sat down and I was just like, I need to get this published. I need to collect all these poems together. I need to 
chronicle my childhood and I just need to share it with the world. Tell me about your healing process. I actually struggle with some childhood amnesia. I don't remember a lot of my childhood, um, but Mm -hmm. when I was around 18 is when I recognized some of what I had gone through. And as soon as that happened, I realized this this process of healing is going to be a lot more um, in depth and difficult than I originally thought. You know, I already knew that I struggled with anxiety. I already knew I had depression. I was already going to therapy. But when I finally recognized that I've been abused in, in those ways, I went to my therapist and obviously I told him um, he was very validating and that was important for me. And we just went through sessions and sessions for years where um, we would just meet and just kind of talk it out. And I think that was really the hardest and the most important part. It sounds so easy, you know, just to talk about it, but just having someone validate my experience was really important. And um, to get that professional opinion, um, those coping mechanisms with grounding, um, breathing exercises, and really working with the memories that I was having. And then, yeah, it finally culminated to me telling the people closest in my life. So that was like my boyfriend, um, my dad, you know, my brothers, my stepmom, all of those people, just sitting them down and having that conversation with them was 100% the biggest part of my healing. I don't think there was anything else that I could have done for me personally to get to where I am today without having told them. So yeah, that was absolutely a major part of my healing was just having the people in my life who I trust and who care about me just know this is why I do some of the things that I do. I've been through this and um, yeah, just having them help me through that and get educated on how to help me through that has been important. Thank you for sharing that. Can I ask around what age you were when that occurred? Yeah, it went on for several years. Um, And like I said, I do struggle with some amnesia. My earliest memories of it are around five. And I remember it going up until, I mean, it went on for several years, like I said. So Mm -hmm. I don't have like a exact cutoff or anything, but I was quite young. um, And yeah. Mm, I'm sorry that happened. Yeah, thank you. So... And I also want to say I'm so happy that your that your family was supportive when you told them that yes. that conversation can go so many different ways. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think you really hit the nail on the head. My biggest fear, and I think a lot of survivors' fears, is um, are they going to believe me? Are they going to get angry at me? Are they going to think this is my fault? Yeah. And that I was terrified of that. My family is very loving very supportive, but you just never know sometimes. Um, Mm -hmm. You can't predict how someone's going to react to you having gone through something that horrendous. And you already see every single day you wake up, the media is saying that women lie all the time, that survivors lie all the time. So really, what are you to do? You know, this has become something that people think of as a political conversation when it's not. This is a human conversation. So I was terrified. Um, but I'm, I'm so grateful that my family was supportive. The first thing they did was just ask if they could hug me, um, tell me that I was strong and that they believed me and then ask 
what questions am I allowed to ask? So they were very supportive, very uh, respectful of my boundaries. And that was so meaningful to me. So important. That's wonderful. Absolutely. That's incredible. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. I don't think they could have reacted any better than they did. So that was, (laughs) that was such an eye opener for me. And that's, that's changed my whole life for sure. Yeah. I, I couldn't help but notice that substances seem to play a very significant role in your book and in your life. Um, are you willing to talk about that at all in terms of um, it seemed to be your mother? Is that correct? Yeah. Had some yeah, issues correct. with that? Yeah. She struggled with um, alcoholism growing up. So that was yeah absolutely a big part of what I talk about as well in my book. Mm-hmm. And you talked a little bit about substance use during your own healing process as well? Yeah, went poorly, sadly. <laughs> so it was something that, were you using it to kind of like numb pain or what What was your substance use like? Um, for me personally, I mean, I've smoked a couple of times and that was kind of, oh, well, I struggle with anxiety. I struggle with PTSD. Like this is clearly the next step. And I think... For me, just being in such a bad place, um, smoking really brought up a lot of those uh, subconscious memories. I think for Mm -hmm. other people, maybe the subconscious is a calm place and their frontal mind is a stressful place. So it reverses. For me, I I had a horrible time. And so kind of drove me away from that. Um, It wasn't something that I ever relied on. It wasn't something that was a really big um, issue ever in my life. I obviously they were not good experiences, but I wrote about them because they were a part of that process for me. And because um, I think a lot of people don't realize that it's not always great. It's not always a part of the process. So Mm -hmm. I've, I've talked to a number of survivors that have kind of described similar things where, um, where substance use kind of uh, cracked a, cracked a door that they had had pretty tightly closed and they hadn't really even realized was there yeah. and um, it can unearth some stuff or, you know, shake yeah. some stuff loose that kind of, kind of takes you on a journey. You know, that's, yeah. you know, there's a reason things are called trips. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That was, that was my experience. <laughs> it was definitely yeah. a trip. Um, yeah. I definitely was not having a good time. Um, it did unearth a lot of memories for me. And then just not having a clear mind, I was unable to um, think about grounding myself, think about how it wasn't reality. So I, yeah, it was, mm. it was definitely not a good experience for me at the time. Mm. I'm sorry. But at the same time, I'm glad that uh, it sounds like it was useful to you in yeah. a way, even if it wasn't pleasant. Yeah, definitely. Um, so a part of the journey. Definitely. Yeah, there's always going to be moments like that, whether you're smoking or not, to be honest. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I've had, I've had flashbacks, I've had, you know, full body flashbacks. Um, Mm. And I think just, just not being sober really makes you more prone to going into those, at least for someone like me. So yeah, Mm -hmm. it's a learning process. Yeah. You wrote about anxiety and about um, flashbacks really beautifully um, Mm -hmm. and in a way that, oh, so relatable. (laughs) Yeah, I was, I was scared too because at least for me, flashbacks, you know, they they take me back to that age, and so I was like, how do I write about this in a way that makes any linear sense? But I'm glad that 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 came through. 
It did beautifully. And I actually, I really appreciated, um, it was, it was done so well that it didn't occur to me that that was an obstacle. So um, yeah. And if that makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> um, it looks easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it just, it, yeah, it made perfect sense. And, and, uh, yeah, that, uh, that time thing that yeah. can definitely be, be real. What was the what was the construction of the book like? Did you already have just a, a collection of work that um, that you decided like here I have it it's the book or did you decide I want to write a book and uh, did some digging and integrated old stuff or was it just I'm going to write about this and it was all new work like what was what was your process like as far as constructing the book itself. Yeah, it was really a mixture of both. I did integrate a ton of old work. Um, When I decided that this is something that is going to be a part of my healing process, I really started scrambling through everything. Like I was looking at old notebooks. I was looking at old Google Docs, um, pulling up my notes app. Everywhere that I write, all of these scrolled out places, I was pulling them together and looking at, you know, what Poems have really helped me remember my childhood. Um, what poems have captured emotions that surround this experience for me? And I found a ton. I would say probably over half of the poems in my book are from years ago, probably like high school age. And mm-hmm. um, obviously, I did some work with my editor to bring them up stylistically to where I am now. You could you could certainly tell they were old work. I'll tell you that much. Um, but the Yo, subject, I feel you. <laughs> so, it was so embarrassing. I was just like, look, I need to capture this experience, but can you help me bring this up to par? But yeah, so there's a ton of old work in there that I just thought, you know what, this is totally appropriate. It's all about my childhood. So it makes sense that I've got some older work. And then, yeah, I wrote some from scratch or like I said, in my notes app, I've got like just single lines that just come to my head throughout the day. And I used those to build, you know, more full poems. Um, so it's a bit of both because I needed to go back in time, really, um, and remember what that was like for me. What was I writing? You know, what was I thinking? And so I had to look. Yeah. How have you been feeling having published the book? Like, how is actually you did the thing? Like, yeah. how, how are you feeling now? <laughs> to be honest, it still hasn't hit. Like, I had a very, very miniature celebration dinner. Um, with my family just to be like, okay, this happened. (laughs) Um, I got the physical book, you know, I've held it in my hands, I've flipped through it and it still doesn't feel entirely real. Um, I haven't really stopped to just kind of be proud of myself yet. I need to do that. I need to sit down later (laughs) and just kind of take it in Um, because it is go, go, go. Uh, When you publish, it's never over. Um, you know, there's some milestones, but I'm still marketing. I'm still doing a lot, but yeah, mainly I think I just feel happy hearing about what other people think of it. This is my first time sharing my poetry ever. (laughs) I just went straight to publishing. (laughs) Yeah. My editors were the first people to ever read my poetry. So I kind of just skipped a couple steps. Um, (laughs) yeah, that's scary. (laughs) Oh, wow. Very scary. Um, but yeah, I love hearing what people think about it and, I've just been really at peace with it. I don't, I mean, I'm at a place in my life where my truth is my truth. And if anyone, you know, doesn't think that that's fine, it's okay. So yeah, mostly just kind of 
going along and trying to continue marketing, trying to be proud of myself. But um, yeah, it hasn't hit yet. So (laughs) do you think there's anything that might happen that you might be holding out for as a milestone that will like make it real for you? I don't know, because I I was like, once I hold this in my hands, you know, that's when it's going to hit. And I've just got it in my room now, one of the copies of my book. And nope. (laughs) So (laughs) I really don't know what it is. Um, I've had people that I don't know, you know, not entire strangers, like people that my family or friends know, um, message me and say, oh, this is wonderful. Or, oh, thank you for sharing um, and I'm just like sharing what, like, what did I do again? So <laughs> I, I entirely forget. But yeah, I, I think maybe one day I'll, I'll just be sitting and I'll be like, Hey, good job. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> maybe you'll get progressively real. Exactly. Yeah. A couple years from now I'll be like, Oh, I published. That's cool. So I'd love to also talk about Sino apparel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did that come about? Yeah. I've always, like I said, I've always been interested in fashion. Um, I'm not really much of a streetwear wearer anymore, but uh, Sino is that. Um, It's like a lot of graphic long sleeves and windbreakers. And it was really inspired by, uh, in high school especially, and I still do this, but high school was an anxiety shit show for me. So I did it especially then. (laughs) Um, But I would write in the palm of my hands little messages to myself to look at through the day. A lot of that, I would just write, you're okay, in the palm of my hand, just to check on it and breathe. And that's pretty much, I just decided to put that on shirts. I was like, hey, like, why not just wear whatever you're thinking? Because that's what I found for my anxiety and my depression is just being very open and upfront and shameless about it has been helpful for me. And there's always going to be people who don't take that very well. But yeah, that was kind of the inspiration was just what are my thoughts? Can I put this on a shirt? Can I make this shameless? Can I make this something that we're open about? Or what are the messages that I tell myself to make myself calm down? You know, you're okay. Or check on your friends. And with the anxiety, like I've got a shirt that says, do I look okay? Cause that's a constant, <laughs> that's a constant <laughs> thing that's running through my head. So really just wanting to put those on shirts. That's kind of what inspired that. That's beautiful. I think like my favorite graphic uh, is the uh, the paper bag people? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. those just really resonate for me personally. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's how I felt my whole life. Is just like I'm putting a paper bag over myself. I'm trying to mask what I'm feeling. Yeah, so it kind of the the logo of the company, which is the masked person, um, versus the name. The name comes from the word signature, which means you know something that's in the spotlight. So they're kind of conflicting, and that's intentional. Uh, is this artwork yours? No. So I have a new collection that is my artwork coming out. Um, I don't have a date for that yet since I'm so all over the place. But the first two collections are, I actually hired graphic designers after, like I would send them sketches of my ideas. I love drawing, but I am very much new to like Adobe and cleaning things up um, digitally. Mm-hmm. So I did, I did hire people to help me out with that. Awesome. Well, it's absolutely beautiful. And it's like, I look through this, this work and it's just really exciting. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. I love, I loved working with the designers who helped me out. I think they were so, they resonated with the message and that was fantastic. So I'm glad that they helped me put that out there. When did that come into being? Um, I believe it was October of 2018. Um, Wow. And, you know, we've only had two collections since then. It is a very expensive (laughs) 
hobby, um, mm-hmm. if you could call it that. Um, so I am working on a new one, but yeah, there's been two collections since October of 2018. Wow. I might, uh, buy myself something. <laughs> That'd be great. Very tempting. <laughs> That one does end with, and the world spins and we die. So if there's one that is an upper, maybe we can, <laughs> maybe we can stick to that. Let me see. Um, yeah, I can do Unorthodox Genie or um, I know the ones toward the end, there's a couple of like more inspiring ones. So maybe that'd be good. Let me see. Um, I've got, let's see. I do really love the Genie one. Uh, yeah, it's so just me to be honest it got um, me yeah it just it's really it's it's very me as well it's, like, yeah. <laughs> it's so important. um I think um be patient is a little bit longer but it is um a little bit more I don't know what the word is inspiring I guess a little bit more up yeah yeah if if you're willing to read genie and and patience that would be yeah. amazing yeah okay so this is unorthodox genie I won't stop driving until I run out of gas, or I guess until I need to piss. I'll stay stuck on Hague Road, feeling wonderfully sorry for myself, wondering why none of my friends have messaged me, then realizing I've put my phone on Do Not Disturb. A genie appears from one of the empty plastic water bottles littering the floor of my car. He slithers out with a purple aura and a shit-eating grin and asks for my three wishes, but I only have two. To drown my hippocampus in the lake off Greyhound Pass? Hold my writhing childhood memories under the murky water until they go limp and cease to haunt me. And that the chapstick in my center console wasn't melted. Okay, Okay, so this is Be Patient. The shit is non-linear, and though it's very disorderly, I am at peace with it. The type of peace that good men and dogs exhibit just before they die. Sometimes the memories devour my cells, toss me to my bedroom floor, and I don't get up for hours. I don't exist. I forget to eat. I close my window and I don't want to be seen. I want to disintegrate, melt into the floorboards, and never be touched again. I have to remind myself where I am, my age, to remember that he isn't here and he can't hurt, touch, reach me. I get so angry about it, I can't help but thinking of destroying myself. But there are other days still that I am able to exist much in the way I did before. Days where all of the fear and shame pour out of my palms as if they had never intended to ruin me in the first place. Relief floods me the way wine floods the veins. Without even realizing it, I take shelter in my body and live again. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I always feel like I'm in a high school speech class or something when I start reading. So, <laughs> Yeah, I start reading and I just like my whole body like gets flushed and I'm oh, just like, oh, just oh total gosh. panic. The resolution comes up. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's it's gotten better since I started doing the podcast. Yeah, but, yeah um, I imagine. Yeah, but I haven't uh, I haven't been a guest for anybody. So oh, when really? when the editing is uh, is in somebody else's hands and and I'm recording for somebody else, I'll I'll bet that'll all come flooding back, and I'll realize <laughs> that I haven't actually made as much progress as I thought it was. I just <laughs> gave myself a remote control and power <laughs> that <laughs> made me. I think I had made more progress. <laughs> I did. For 
survivors in general, I would just say, you know, creative or not, um, if you're in a place or if you have people in your life that you can share your story with, um, I think that is monumental to healing. Uh, I think it's so important to have someone to validate your experiences outside of your own mind. Um, just to know what happened to you was real uh, and wasn't right. And to have that advocate by your side. So I, I highly, highly recommend that um, whether it's a friend or family member or just, you know, whoever you can find that you trust. Um, and for creatives, absolutely using that as your medium for healing, you're going to find a lot of really great work flowing out of you when you connect with that self, with that part of yourself. You know, the inner child or any healing work that you're trying to do is such an inspiration. And I think using writing or drawing or whatever it is that you do is one of the best, most authentic ways to start healing and to share your journey. And it's so inspiring to others. You know, it's something that other people can look at, they can witness, they can resonate with. Um, so absolutely, you know, trying to share your story through any type of art or creative en endeavor is fantastic. That's where some of the greatest pieces come from. So definitely staying with that, you know, and just writing and drawing and keeping with it and not allowing anyone to tell you otherwise that your story is not real or not valid um, or that your artwork isn't worth anything. Keep doing it for sure. How did you keep that faith yourself that what you were doing was worthwhile? To be honest, I don't know because there were a lot of days, um, especially growing up, I have a very artistic mother, but obviously um, I didn't see her a lot or, you know, we had a kind of a difficult relationship um, and, you know, my dad isn't very into writing or anything. So I was kind of down about it growing up. Um, I thought that maybe it was too dark or maybe it wasn't worth sharing. Um, and just as an adult now, looking back on it and realizing that that was my language, that was how I communicate with the world and that it's helped me. I've looked at my process, you know, my own writing has helped me further my journey. So I can only imagine that hopefully it'll do the same for others. I know that I have gotten through some really tough times by reading other poets, by looking at artwork. And so I know that me creating stuff and putting it into the world has to resonate with someone. It has to speak with someone and it's worth just resonating with one person to put it into the world. Even if it's super scary, it's worth that. I was glad that you mentioned your inner child because there's a poem in there where you talk about pulling over in your car and the interaction with your inner child was really moving and really uh, just visceral. Yeah. And I'd love to hear about uh, just kind of your relationship with your inner child and how that has, uh, it, it seemed like a really, a very tangible relationship to you. And I wondered if that has kind of intersected with your healing process uh, or, or your therapy potentially in any way that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, that's been major for me. Um, you know, with these things, a lot of the time, some um, self-image issues arise. I've definitely, um, I'm very guilty of, you know, not talking to myself very kindly. And um so having doing that inner child work has been helpful with that. It's been helpful with working through my trauma. And I did feel a little bit crazy for a while because I would literally, and I still do this, um, 
I imagine my younger self just in front of me. And that poem was very literal. Um, and I just talked to her. I just asked her, you know, what's up? Are you okay? Why are we feeling like this? And um, I talked to my therapist about it. And he was like, no, that's, that's fantastic. Keep doing that. So it's absolutely helped me to just sit down and have a full conversation with her. Um, you know, children are so <laughs> honest. They're so authentic and genuine. And that's the same for me as a younger child. So speaking with her, it's like, you know, I talked earlier about checking in with yourself throughout the day. This is just a deeper level of that. Um, and if I'm having an anxiety attack that seems to have no cause, or if I'm struggling with intimacy or these nightmares, I will just envision my younger self and I'll just sit down with her and I'll say, what do I need to do? How can I help you through this? I apologize to her often for what happened. Um, I allow her to be joyful. And you know that to other people, that just looks like me being happy, but it really is my inner child just coming out and allowing her to live as she should have been able to and being authentic with who she is and who I am. Um, so that's been a, yeah, that's been absolutely very integral to my, to my journey. Thank you for talking about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think there are, oh, so many experiences like that of, of us interacting with ourselves and just like uh, healing modalities and, and articulations of self that make us feel crazy because we don't see them reflected in the world around us or the way that we talk about things, you know, in society or things are, you know, you feel crazy because you don't see it elsewhere. It isn't, it isn't articulated in the culture or something like that. Honestly, like the question of why it is that that feels so crazy to us uh, is, is a good one. Um, Cause I've had similar experiences where something made me feel crazy, but it was ultimately a really incredible healing tool an important part of experiencing and interacting with self. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I loved hearing about your version of that. And, uh, and I think it's really important for, for survivors to, to hear from other survivors, you know, you're not crazy. <laughs> Whatever yeah, you need to do. <laughs> that's why I had to ask my therapist. I was like, Hey, look, is this detrimental? Cause it doesn't feel like it. Is this crazy? Um, and he was like, no, this is work that people do. And I'm glad you've already started it. Um, Obviously, I'm not going to be in the grocery store just talking with my eyes looking at like two feet level or something. <laughs> but, um, but absolutely, when I'm at home, I fully envision her. If I have space to myself, I fully envision her. If I can't, I'll just talk to her in my mind. You know, we, we often think of, you know, just stoic talking therapy. You know, that's what's shown in the media. And it's not all like that. We have to do a lot of work at home. We have to do a lot of work with our younger selves. So, yeah. Yeah. So you had, you had another poem in there that was, um, it's a sensitive subject. And once again, feel free to let me know if something's off the table or if, if it's just, yeah, let's not go there. Um, but I can't remember the title of the poem, but the, the, how was it including the nausea after, um, intercourse. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, I was wondering if you would be comfortable talking about navigating sexual relationships yeah, um, after sexual trauma uh, in the past or, or that process and what that's like for you and what's been important to you in terms of healing. Yeah, 100%. 
I'll tell you, giving that poem to my editor was so scary because <laughs> um, that, that was definitely a very um, intimate topic, obviously. But I, yeah. I felt it's it's the reality of what survivors live with. Um, it's a great poem. Thank you. Yeah. And toward the end, I kind of talk about um, me personally. I really do flip back and forth between being like sexually repulsed and being just an entirely sexual being where I feel like that's my meaning. That's my purpose. Um I feel like that's common for survivors. Maybe sometimes they stick to one or the other or they flip back and forth. But I thought that was important to talk about. Um, Not only is it a difficult thing to, you know, engage in as a survivor, but for me, it also um, is part of the reason that I started to remember what I went through. You know, like I said, I had some amnesia and it wasn't until I was about 18 um, when I started becoming sexually active that I started having these flashbacks. And it makes total sense. You know, those parts of your body are being, um, you know, touched. And so that's going to bring back some um, muscle memory. You're going to start thinking about that. You know, why does this feel wrong? Um, A lot of questioning, all of the things that went through your head um, before, Mm -hmm. if you were, you know, a childhood sexual assault victim. Uh, So, you know, one of the most important things for me has just been being able to be very open with my partner, um, very trusting in him and letting him know, you know, what's up. Um, and I know a lot of people have safe words as well, especially survivors, because there are days you just cannot, but I think talking about how silence is a safe word, um, you know, freezing is a safe word because a lot of us do that. A lot of us, um, go back into that mode where we can't speak for ourselves. So having that conversation is very important. Being open and honest with yourself, checking in with with your body is so important because yeah, intimacy is very, very difficult thing to navigate. Thank you for being willing to talk about that. I know it's a very personal subject, but it's it's a question that I get a lot, especially when it has to do with uh, with cis male partners. Yes, especially yeah, and I think having them being willing to educate themselves is important um, because there are people who have these you know preconceived ideas about what being with a survivor means, um, and they don't know how to look for those signs. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's a very important discussion to have. And I know it can be difficult to talk about. It's not, quote unquote, sexy to sit down and um, have a conversation about what it looks like to disassociate during intimacy. It's not um, and it's not meant to be sexy. This is real life. This is what people experience. And if your partner is mm-hmm. someone who is trustworthy and cares about you, then that's a conversation they should be open to having. Yeah. And I, I love that you mentioned that it's not sexy because I think um, something that's lacking from like sexual intimacy in and in sexual relationships in our culture is the concept um, or just the fact that all of the things that are required from a healthy sexual relationship, the fact that not all of those things are sexy. Right. And then once that's addressed – it might not be sexy, but it won't be unsexy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's that's something that I've kind of found as I've navigated these these issues, um, and in my own uh, relationship, it's it's interesting, and it's sure. a it's a conversation that I end up having with other survivors as well. Is uh, is like why is it? Uh, yeah. Or or something that I find coming up when I when I read. Um, things on the internet or like cis men responding 
to talk about consent or the Me Too movement talking about like, well, what am I supposed to do? Like, just like, you know, in the middle of everything, just be like, are you okay? Or like, you know, how, how is it sexy to be like, can I kiss you? And it's like, how... (laughs) it's so yeah just I don't I don't even know what to do with it it's just sort of like well how is it sexy to to not ask and fuck up like you don't, want, you don't want me to be super engaged and super into it I think you can definitely ask it in a way that doesn't ruin the mood I don't know why yes they've got this vision of just like halting taking six feet back like and just be yeah. like, hold up hold up is this like, chill with you like, no you might not be holding a clipboard when you ask like it doesn't it doesn't have to become clinical like no. asking, asking like are you okay can I do such and such no right. it doesn't have to break the mood and no, it really it's ridiculous the idea that you know it has to or it's just upsetting. Yeah. I, I mean, there, there's, I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole different conversation, but. <laughs> yeah, no. And that's, I think, like you said, our society is very inclined to just want these passionate, like random, no talking, like sex scenes where we didn't have to discuss what I like beforehand. Um, and mm-hmm. we're not mind readers. Like no one's a mind reader. You should be having conversations with your sexual partners um, regardless just about, you know, what you're chill with. And um, that doesn't have to be the super, we're making out and I'm just going to stop and be like, oh no. <laughs> I don't know why people people think it has to be so unsexy or why it matters that it's sexy or not. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a person. I have my preferences. I have my, you know, experiences. So. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's, it's a big cultural shift to make consent sexy because um, it should be. Um, and it's sort of weird that it isn't like to people so (laughs) kind of seems like a big symptom of a huge problem (laughs) so yeah but uh but definitely uh opening that dialogue and and with your partner getting to a place where um where as you say like silence or disassociation or stillness and recognizing those things talking about those things um that's a that's a big game changer and um you know and I know my partner checks in with me a lot and that's been incredibly important so just you know little little check-ins um that don't that don't break the mood um but that keep something really bad from happening exactly yeah like you want to see the alternative to this like if you yeah yeah, well, and it's um, you know, a, a big way that he checks in with me is uh, is kind of like, are you okay, or or is this okay? And just looking for that for that verbal yes, and yeah. um, and you know, an interesting, uh, I, I like that you mentioned silence or stillness, um, and then you know, kind of brought that into the conversation, um, and something that I had to to check in with myself and, and ended up, you know, like we had a conversation, I think within the last year, which was when I realized like, Ooh, like I, you know, part of my trauma means I might lie to that question. Uh, if I'm in the middle of, you know, if, if I like missed a couple checkpoints and entered into a, like, I'm not okay. And I like missed this, this, like the sign. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just sort of like, okay, so now I'm in like a not great 
place. And, uh, and now I'm in the place where I feel I'm required to lie to that right. question. And then, you know, having to fight to, to get back into, to the present to, it is okay to say that I'm not okay. Exactly. And I need to be honest, even though that's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's so very important to have a partner who respects that. Yes. 100%. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you found somebody who's willing to have these conversations with you. Yeah, for sure. It's been fantastic just to have, I mean, it seems like such decent, like common decency, but it, when you live through <laughs> these things, it's like, oh, wow, like this person, this person cares that I'm enjoying myself and um, it's definitely a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a low bar, but. It does. It does. <laughs> like, I know culturally this is something we're working on. And yeah. so I do appreciate having that open, honest conversation with someone. It's very nice. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear, um, there's always talk about red flags, about recognizing, you know, a bad egg uh, in terms of like choosing partners. But um, if you can think of anything, what were your green flags? Things that for you meant like, hmm, you might be one of the good ones. Yeah. Um, you might be worth my time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, there are a lot of like on the news, there's a ton of reports about, um, sexual assault and everything. And, um, having someone that is willing to have an open conversation about that and isn't very dismissive of the things that are on the news is important just someone who, you know, okay, this is a conversation. Maybe they're not fully educated on it, but they know that this stuff happens. This is the real world. These aren't all a bunch of lies. This is stuff that women and, you know, other survivors go through. So that was, that was definitely a winner for me was knowing that I could have that open conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And someone who also is going to step forward for any of your boundaries. You know, if you tell them, I don't like when people or when you do this and they step up to the plate or if someone does something to you that you dislike and they step forward and they, you know, help you voice that, that that's definitely a good one too. Because mm. those smaller boundaries that you put in place are really the precursors. Um, they might seem small, but they are the precursors to determining if this person is going to respect your bigger boundaries. If they can't respect the small ones, you're probably not going to get respect for the bigger ones. Well said. I think a big portion of this fight against childhood sexual abuse is really on educating parents because there's a lot that you can look out for. Um, obviously, it's no one's fault except for the perpetrator, but you know, parents being more aware of their child's um, actions and knowing how to talk to them is so important. I think this culture is so like big on stranger, like stranger danger, stranger danger. Um, but with issues like this, we're talking about people in your family. We're talking about people next door. Um, we're talking about people that you trust most of the time. These are the people who are grooming kids who are, you know, abusing them because that's what they do. They earn your trust. You know, the best serial manipulators out there are very charming. They're so charming. They're, you know, they know how to talk to people. And that's what they're going to do. They're going to get your trust. So I think talking to parents about having that discussion with their kids beyond stranger danger, um, having trusted adults 
knowing what that means to trust an adult and knowing that it's definitely a red flag. You know, if someone tells you to keep a secret, stuff like that and bodily autonomy, teaching them the correct um, words for their, you know, body parts is a big one. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just so many things that parents can do um, to help their kids be aware of that. And it's all age appropriate. You know, there's a lot of age appropriate um, consent content out there for parents. They don't have to go in and talk to their child about sexual abuse and what that is. Just talking about consent and a scale that they can understand um, can help them apply that to bigger situations. Yeah. And it's, um, it's worth saying explicitly that most abuse or sexual assault that happens to children, it is the majority of the time somebody that they know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a, that's something that I guess some people don't know Yeah, because you're right. That stranger danger, that is the big focus. And um, yeah. And that's, yeah. That's why so many survivors I think have a hard time coming forward is because who's going to believe me that this super nice man who lives across the street, who is college educated, who has intelligent conversations, who is not an outcast, who's, you know, in his community, he's donating, he's charitable. Who's going to believe me that he did one of the most heinous things you can to a child. Mm. Um, That certainly went through my head. I'm sitting there. I'm like, okay, people like him. So why would they believe this? Mm. Um, I'm very fortunate that I was, you know, taken in and believed, but I know that that's a struggle for a lot of survivors. So I think sharing that message that it's really not strangers as frequently as we may believe is so important. You need to talk to your kid about what trusting adults mean and what their body, you know, is and that it's theirs. You know, they don't need to do anything for anybody, adult or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. And those rules about secrets. Yeah. You know, and and understanding that if, that if an adult lies to them about, you know, like something bad will happen if you tell that that is absolutely a situation where even if you're scared of that thing or it's a scary scenario that somebody just spun for you that you need to tell somebody yeah that that won't happen <laughs> exactly yeah yeah you need to be able to know that that secret's not something you have to keep it's not the truth and um that this is you know just because then it's adult as a child you deify adults to an extent um, yes you think everything that they say is the truth, everything that they say is correct, it's right, it's fine. Um, and that's part of the grooming process is really making them believe that these actions are okay. Um, and so helping your kid be able to say no and be strong in that is a big one. And um, yeah, just knowing that adults are not <laughs> not everything that you think they are, um, you are allowed to say no to an adult. Yeah, I think... Um... I think the cultural desire for obedient children really gets in the way of ending a lot of abuse because there is that, um, oof, it, it really just uh, is a massive barrier is the way that we program children to, to believe and trust adults in positions of authority. Um, you know, for, for example, like teachers believing in teachers and accepting what teachers tell you is the truth. And that's problematic, like, of course, like in an abusive situation where you're trusting that an abusive teacher is, you know, telling you the truth or doing something acceptable. But also um, just in terms of like 
raising intelligent children. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, teaching them that uh, that not everything the teacher says is real or true. Right. Um, and that certainly uh, a lot of people don't even start realizing that until high school. Um, you know, and and may even get all the way through high school into college, not you know, fully comprehending that not everything they're being taught is, is true. And so it's just this, uh, this acceptance of, of authority figures as deities, as you said, or, you know, like infallible figures uh, of power. And then also everything that comes out of their mouth is, is gospel truth. That's problematic on so many different levels. It really is. And I get it. I know like a lot of parents, kind of get their hackles raised when you talk about these things because they're like, oh, well, I want a child who's well-behaved, disciplined, they listen. Um, And you can have, you know, a very well-behaved child who has bodily autonomy. (laughs) Like this is a thing, you know, kids who aren't getting into trouble can also be kids who say no. I don't know why there's this idea that that's not something that can coexist. Um, I guess it depends on your idea of discipline. (laughs) But um, teaching your kid that no, people laugh sometimes, but I think giving your kid um, the ability to say no is so important. I know there are certain um, situations you couldn't, like they got to go to school, we're going to get dressed, but letting them do with their own body as they wish, you know, if they don't want you to be in the room while they're getting dressed, allow that. If they don't want to be hugged, allow that. And just listening to them because, you know, they're, they're people, And they're going to take into adulthood what you've taught them in childhood. So if you're not teaching them that no is an acceptable answer, if you're not teaching them that Mm -hmm. stop matters, they're not going to go into adulthood. They're not going to go into these situations believing that. They're going to think, okay, I owe someone something. Um, And that was a big issue for me. I, my no's weren't very seriously taken, you know? So I was definitely, you know, a, a target. So I think that's definitely a conversation parents should have with kids. It's something they should allow is that no. Yeah, 100% agreed. And I love the uh, the part of that conversation that I've seen various articles on is is talking about, um, you know, a change in parenting in, in terms of, as you said, allowing for that no and allowing for uh, making space for those boundaries, those personal boundaries and respecting them, teaching a child that they'll be respected, that they don't yeah. owe somebody physical affection. So things like if they don't want to hug grandma or grandpa goodbye, right. that they don't have to, that they don't have to be physically affectionate if they're not feeling like it, if they don't feel comfortable, that that's okay. Um, And then also like something that comes up when you're talking about like a child wanting to be alone when they were getting dressed. I think part of that too is, is also um, for parents to be more willing to accept that your child isn't you, right? that they're not just an extension of you, that personal boundaries might be unique and that 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 might happen very early. Oh yeah. So I think there's um, you know, like I think there might be, you know, a little bit of that disposition towards, you know, like, well, I want to be alone when I get dressed or saying like, well, I was never like that. Right. And it's like, okay, well, your child is more private. Yeah, than your you child are. is a different person. Okay. Entirely. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> your child is a different person. Radical thought. I know, it's insane. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's hard for people to grasp and I'm not a parent, so I can't, you know, say all of these things as, as factual, but I do know that this is something 
that's important and it impacts your kid. I mean, this is, this is how they're going to go into adulthood. You can't expect them to be ready for these instances where they're going to have to say no, where they want to say no and to believe in themselves. If you never establish that foundation for them. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it can be time exhausting or it can be all of these different things. Um, trying to accommodate their boundaries as they're growing up. You know, they're little, they're new to this, but just showing the utmost respect for that teaches them from day one, like you are a person, you owe no one nothing as far as, you know, your body goes. Um, This is your space. Set that, set those foundations, those boundaries up, and that'll let them go into adulthood much more ready for those, you know, occasions. Mm -hmm. I'm going to look for an article or a fact sheet that includes, um, warning signs uh, or, or things, things that parents can do or that adults can do to spot childhood yeah. abuse and then also things that they can do to prevent it. Uh, and I will post that in episode notes. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. So hopefully get the word out on some of that stuff. Yeah. I think it's so important for parents because like I said, obviously the perpetrator is the one to be blamed. But even as someone who went through several years of this, um, there are days that I struggle. I'm just like, how did no one see this? And I get so frustrated. So yeah. I think being educated on that, if you have kids, um, or even if you just work with kids is monumental, that can really change someone's life. Yeah, I would I would love for there to be uh, like required workshops or some kind of training involved in, uh, in teaching or childcare. I'm surprised. Um, that we like children spend so much of their time, like just a massive percentage of time, um, in like learning situations, you know, with, yeah. with teachers or with caretakers. And, and if those people were trained to spot the warning signs, it would be such a game changer. Uh, Truly. Yeah. Cause a lot of them, they don't have that vocabulary for that yet. A lot of them are mm-hmm. going to come up and say, X, Y, Z is molesting me. No one's teaching them that word. There's not a word for it for a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this coded language that they have. They're using what they have, you know, um, it's a game or no, like all of these things that teachers, mm-hmm. maybe they don't look into and there's so many missed opportunities. It's frustrating. I think it absolutely yeah. should be mandatory. And just and just noticing uh, changes in behavior. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that are, that are big red flags. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The same way I wish um, that there were training that that teachers and caretakers received uh, to spot those warning signs. I really wish that, and, and I've said this before on the podcast. Mm-hmm. It is like my dream that part of every like college freshman seminar class involved self-defense training yes 100 that is such a dream for me i want that so bad that would be fantastic because i know college campuses are so dangerous um, yeah. with that so i think that would be fantastic um mm-hmm. i know some colleges are doing like uh consent classes or like mandatory forms that people have to fill out saying they understand consent but um mm-hmm. interesting you know, i hadn't heard that yeah, like I have a friend. Um, I think she, I think it's Purdue. I know that they had something like that. I don't know if it's all classes or how it works. Um, I've never been to college, but I do think that the self defense classes would be super super helpful, just so you can at least feel more safe walking around alone. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I wish I wish that was a thing too. 
What does your near future look like? What are, what are you up to and what's going on moving forward? Yeah, doing a lot of um, stuff with the book. I'm not a pro marketer by any means. So uh, kind of taking this one step at a time, trying to figure out um, how to get the word out. Because at the end of the day, my main goal is really to spread awareness about these things. It's not so much just to sell a book. It's it's more I, I hope parents start to realize that this is really unfortunately quite common um, mm-hmm. and they can play a role in helping to avoid that. They can play a role in stopping it if it's already happening. So in the near future, I'm definitely looking into you know working with organizations who create curriculum for schools and stuff on consent, on abuse and spotting those signs. So I'd like to get into that. So yeah, that's kind of what I'm looking into in the next couple of weeks and the next couple of months. <laughs> that's wonderful. I think a lot of my OCD uh, stems from just having been sexually abused. Um, obviously, I've got some repetitive thoughts, but I um, also struggle with certain rituals. So like at night, I shower compulsively um, or checking the doorknobs is a really big one. I just never feel entirely safe. You know, I don't feel like the doors are ever entirely shut. So yeah, I think a lot of my OCD stems from just having been traumatized in that way. A lot of it has to do with safety. Yeah, I know a lot of people think of like cleanliness or being a germaphobe and stuff like that. But for me, it manifests just not feeling safe. So are you receiving treatment or like, is that a part of your healing journey or? Yeah, for sure. I definitely take small steps. Like um, if I want to check the doorknob, can I wait 15 minutes? You know, because it does, when you have OCD, it really feels like your mind is telling you, you don't have to do this. Like you can stop and your body's just going for it. You really can't. It, It does feel like you're kind of just witnessing yourself do these things. And that's what a lot of people don't get. You know, they're like, oh, just stop doing it. And it's like, oh, my body's already there. <laughs> so um, it's very difficult. And especially when, you know, you've got these thoughts that, oh, something bad's going to happen. If you don't, um, someone's going to face consequences if you don't check the doorknob for the third time. It sounds silly, but, you know, you believe it with full conviction. Hmm. So I just do those small steps where I'm like, okay, I really, really, really want to check the doorknob or I really feel the need to shower. And I just make myself wait. I'll be like, can I wait 15 minutes? Okay, do I still want to shower or check the doorknob after 15 minutes? Can I wait longer? Did I forget about it? Um, just to remind myself, like, this is my choice. This is my body. My mind is trying to make me believe I have to do this, but I'm not going to do this right now. Yeah, thank you for talking about that. It, it showed up in a few of your poems, and mm-hmm. I really appreciated um, that you included that part of your experience because yeah. um, it, it doesn't show up for for everybody the same way but if you know for one person it's not OCD then it's something else but exactly. just like trauma emerges uh, oh, yeah. bubbles up for us in, yeah. in a variety of different super awesome ways right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh, and it's unique for everybody it and is. um yeah so I, I really appreciate you being willing to share that Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's important to have those conversations because trauma does, you know, affect you both physically and mentally for however long after it happens. Um, I would say a majority of, you know, my um, struggles mentally just stem from that experience alone. 
um, physically even, you know, I'm in pain a lot of the time and people don't talk about that a lot is that, you know, trauma can have a lasting effect on how your body holds pain and what you feel and perceive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very real. Chronic illness and chronic pain conditions are astronomically more likely in folks who have experienced trauma. Um, So do you have a chronic pain condition that you're willing to discuss or? Yeah, I've had, I mean, um, really intense, like abdominal pelvic pain. Um, And I've been to so many specialists just trying to figure it out. And it really, I just genuinely believe it just is having been traumatized, you know, for a long time, I'm like, okay, maybe I'm allergic to gluten, like <laughs> just things like that. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, I was getting tested and all of, all of those things, but it really is just me holding on to pain, I think. And, um, it doesn't make it any less real. It is very painful. I'm, um, frequently tired and, um, not having a word for it can be really, disheartening because you know you feel like oh well I want to get treatment or I want to be able to tell people what this is so they don't think I'm making it up but um it's very real even if you don't have a name for it so yeah um, yeah and I've I've just had tons of doctors just be like oh I don't know I I think it's fine we'll just do pain management but uh Mm -hmm. yeah trauma trauma shows up in so many ways yeah it does yeah my um my sister has been doing uh, a lot of work with with chronic pain. I, I'm trying to remember the uh, the name of the. It's an app that she started using, but it it really does look at that like that trauma pain link mm-hmm. and starts the work there. Oh, that's um, awesome! Yeah, and uh, and she's she's found it really beneficial uh, and really interesting as well. And uh, and it might, yeah, if you're if you're in a situation where there's no like diagnosis and you know, frustrating situations with doctors or people not believing you, it might be nice to, to flip through it, whether you use the app or not, just to like, you know, read some affirming, validating articles about the links between like trauma and pain and the research that's been done on it. Cause it is very frustrating to have pain dismissed or, um, are not validated in a certain way. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's tiring to be in pain all the time. And, but you have to think like your body, at least mine, especially having anxiety and um, having these experiences, I feel like I'm constantly having an adrenaline rush. Like I'm always in fight or flight mode. It feels like mm-hmm. uh, something bad's going to happen at all times. So no wonder, like I'm tired, I'm in pain, I'm, I'm holding all of these things. So um, yeah, I would love that. I love to hear like other experiences and have that affirmation because it's so real. It's just something, you know, doctors are just like, well, there's not a name, so just move along. So, yeah. And it's, it's certainly as soon as you have a uterus, um, yeah. doctors are super comfortable dismissing pain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. well, it's probably just, you know, your cramps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even if they don't say that, just like mm-hmm. as, as soon as, um, as soon as someone is assigned female at birth, uh, you know, any any kind of pain they experience is is so much more easy for a doctor to dismiss. It's, oh, 100%. I've had a lot of super great experiences with that in my life as well. Yeah, not to mention if you're a person of color on top of that. Word. Yes. Oh, yeah, it's so, so real. Um, yeah. Oh, medicine has a lot of work to do. A lot, yeah. in a lot of different ways. 
a lot of learning. I read an amazing article recently that was talking about uh, a lot of us tend to dismiss the, well, and I started talking about this before, like checking in with you about what your opinions are, but a lot of us tend to dismiss uh, folks who are not interested in receiving the vaccine or who are anti-vaccine and a lot of us dismiss them as uh, as idiots um, or or fools and just get angry at them and don't really investigate it. But right. it was an article that was looking at okay, so you know, look at the history of like modern Western medicine mm-hmm. and the way that it has straight up experimented on women and uh, people of color. Yeah. Uh, you know, throughout history, subjected them to torture and just terrible things. And then looking at the percentage of black folks who don't trust the vaccine or, you know, aren't interested in receiving. And it's like, are, are we going to ignore that? You know, I, I mean, that's very real. And then also women, um, uh, who, you know, people who are assigned female at birth, especially who have had a lot of them, uh, really unpleasant, situations uh with with doctors who have had pain or conditions dismissed because of their gender and it's really it was putting it in the perspective of this isn't just the fault of these people who don't trust the vaccine like look closer why don't they trust the vaccine ultimately a certain amount of responsibility has to you know, be with doctors and with modern medicine in terms of, well, you haven't gained the trust of people because you haven't been acting super great historically and right. just kind of, you know, allowing that to be a part of the conversation. And I, I found that a really, a really important article to read. Um, and I appreciated that, uh, that lens. No, definitely. Yeah. And I think people are so dismissive because it's easier to just label that and to move on, but it, it really is something historically that's happened, you know, human experimentation. And mm-hmm. um, it sounds like, oh, a conspiracy. No, this, this happens. Like this is stuff super that the, real. Yeah. The government did to um, two people. So um, to carry that belief on totally valid. I don't know why there's this, oh, well just forget that we ever injected you with stuff that we lied about. Like, why would you, yeah. why would you dismiss that? That's a valid the syphilis re- experiment yeah, yeah. Like, or, how, you how know, you or like, <laughs> The start of uh of like gynecology for oh, for women oh like like what that poor fucking woman I, like I can't even fucking ugh. and and there was a statue to that guy right for ages so it. yeah yeah cool. exactly like yeah. celebrate it you know what a hero and he just tortured a, a black woman because you know he believed she couldn't feel. That's, that's a common belief held today still by doctors. Um, yes. That's, that's why it has to be so scary to go in. I mean, even as a woman, um, a cis woman going in and just having a conversation with a doctor, I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm like, are they going to dismiss my pain? But I can't imagine like being a black woman and going in. And that's like, that's twofold. You have doctors who have outwardly said, oh, I don't think they feel pain. How, how do you have a conversation about that? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Just unfucking believable. Disgusting. How I don't get it. All of this just really this needs to be addressed on so many levels. Yeah. And um and the responsibility has to, you know, be owned at a certain point by um Absolutely. by medical institutions and people who are training these these next generations. 
And they go through so much schooling. You kind of just think, oh, well, they, they know everything. They're empathetic. I mean, they're doctors, but mm-hmm. there's just not enough, you know, there. So definitely yeah. would love to see a change in that industry. Yeah. That would, that would be stellar. That'd be great for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Oh. You did mention in the book at some points that you went to church. Has faith been a part of your healing process? Not really. Um, as far as, you know, going to church and the, I guess, the Christian idea of religion hasn't been a big contributor to my journey personally. Uh, spirituality has, you know, looking into meditation and getting into contact with myself. I don't know, that sounds weird, but really just talking with myself and um, practicing those mindfulness techniques, breathing and meditation, the universe, all of that good stuff. But as far as the idea of just going into church or praying, no, it hasn't been a big, um, big thing in my journey. How did you get into meditation? I don't know. I think, um, you know, my therapist is really big on on stuff like that. So he kind of brought that idea up. Um, and then I just jumped right into it. Uh, started listening to podcasts that go into it and learning about what that is and different ways to do it and different ways that it's helpful. So yeah, I think it was a recommendation from him, but it's been fantastic just to sit as someone with the most racing thoughts and especially having OCD. I mean, to just sit and be with your thoughts is so daunting, but when you force yourself to do it and sit with it long enough and practice it, it's it's definitely a relief. It's very intriguing. It is very insightful. Do you just kind of turn inward or do you find a mantra helpful or looking at an object or what kind of meditation are you doing? Um, I do a mix, but typically um, I'll do just where I'm allowing every single thought that I have to just go through and just watching my thoughts um, as a spectator and not as someone, you know, who is those thoughts, not embodying those and allowing them to um, influence how I'm feeling or make me anxious. Um, And then kind of just checking in with my whole body as those thoughts start to slow down, you know, going head to toe, toe to head and, and being very conscious of my body because I do, I think I talk about it in my book. I do, struggle sometimes, you know, my body will go numb or I'm in pain frequently. And so to just sit and check in physically is very helpful and kind of lets me know where I'm at, especially daily. It's very helpful. I love the way you talked about thoughts and it reminded me of one of the, one of my favorite visualizations that somebody ever told me about in, um, in a meditation uh, workshop that I did once. And it was uh, visualizing the self as the mountains and the thoughts yeah. as the clouds oh, that just that. float around the peaks, but they are not the same. Yeah, I love that. I, I frequently um, will imagine myself like sitting on the side of a stream or a river and just watching the thoughts. I'll put them each on a leaf. That's something my therapist told me, but all of the thoughts on a leaf and they just kind of go down the river. And if the river speeds up and it's super turbulent, that's okay. But just to keep letting them go, even if the same one keeps coming up, that's been my favorite, but I love the mountain one. I haven't heard that one. I haven't heard the leaf one. I really love that one. (laughs) That was a really nice (laughs) meditation exchange. Yeah. Yeah, Yay. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm actually a Buddhist. 
Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I was actually the podcast I was referring to, they were all Buddhist podcasts. Um, and I'm not the most educated on it, but it has been certainly the most soothing thing I have found. Um, that's been major for my healing. Mm. Awesome. Thank you for sharing your practice. Absolutely. Yeah. I loved talking to you and I completely adore the book and I'm really suggesting it to all my listeners. It's a beautiful read and, um, and I hope you give it a try. And thank you so much for joining me, Bailey. It was wonderful talking to you. You too. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to take a look at the episode notes to check out Bathtub in Flames, available in paperback and on Kindle. And also be sure to check out Sino Apparel. Please write in to podcast.findingokay at gmail.com with feedback, questions, and episode requests. Let me know if you're interested in joining me on the show. I would love to have you. Finding Okay is crowdfunded and paid for out of pocket. I am unemployed with the pandemic and anything helps. Please consider donating. You only need $1 to help. Please visit buymeacoffee.com backslash finding okay to contribute. A link can be found on the podcast website, www.finding-ok.com, and I post links routinely on my Facebook page. I also post relevant articles, art, memes, and resources daily. My memes are fire! Feel free to friend me, Hecate F-O-K, H-E-C-A-T-E-F dot O-K-A-Y. You can also find me on Instagram. I have created a private Finding OK Facebook group for survivors. You are welcome there, and I hope you'll join us. Please take a minute to rate and review the podcast to help me reach more listeners. Reviews are featured on the new website, and you get a shout-out on the next episode. If you can't afford to donate, leaving a review and sharing online or through word of mouth is the best way that you can help the podcast. Y'all, the biggest shout-out ever to the person who donated $50 for New Year's. That kind of money is a game-changer to me right now. It means I'm not only able to afford monthly fees— I'm able to provide hours of extra content, purchase the books I'm reviewing from the authors who are joining me on the show, and rent some of the Survivor movies I'm hoping to review with Kim. Thank you so much for helping me keep this going. I don't think I talk about it enough, but I love this podcast. I love doing this. I love every step of the process. After every amazing conversation with incredible and inspiring people. I'm thrilled to have a new episode to edit. The editing, that's the part that's a chore to some people. I fucking love this podcast and I love everyone who's a part of it. I love all my listeners, all my followers and Facebook friends, and I love the people who are helping me keep it afloat in the middle of these crazy times. I love what I'm doing. I feel like I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. It brings each day joy and purpose and gives me hope. Thank you so much, Anonymous Donor, for helping me continue doing what I love. To thank you for the largest donation I've received since the first donations that launched the podcast, I wanted to do something special. And that's why my partner is going to join me now to help me learn how to make celebratory air horn noises.
like point, 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 point. yeah and just throw some little See, point, 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 point. Point, 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 point. No, 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 you gotta do better. Kind of, but like, I don't know. Put more air down. I don't know. Do I have to drop my voice? No, it's gonna be higher somehow. Yeah, push some more oxygen. Should I hold my nose? Actually, I think that's really good. Do you know? No, it's bad. Oh, okay. I don't think it's good. I love you, but I don't think that's good. <laughs> you do it again. Yeah, pretend it's like a baby filled with air. What? It's like a baby filled with air. Like, pretend you're like crying. Closer, yeah. Thank you so much. Please share, subscribe, and donate if you can. Thank you again for listening. This has been Finding Okay. Black Lives Matter. Take care of yourself. Your heart is a muscle the size of your fist. Keep on loving. Keep on pointing. And hold on. And hold on. Hold on for your life. For your life. For your life. Your heart is a muscle the size of your fist. Keep on loving. Keep on fighting. Bye 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 b